Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. There is nothing new under the sun. singer who's in the drifters although you know he's much too young to be in the original drifters but he's in he's in the current drifters he's a wonderful singer and it was at my yacht club and he was there and and then they had they roped me into it into jamming with him and he had an iphone and he sang to backing tracks so he'd 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 be singing something he'd be singing you know under the boardwalk and somebody would have just have requested you know Heard it through the grapevine, and while he's singing, he's getting a karaoke version off iTunes of "I Heard It Through the Grapevine," and by the time he gets to the end of the song, he's teed up for the next one. So he's putting it through the PA. Or yeah, the... yeah. So it's a big PA. So that comes club. with it's the music like, and the lyrics. One hundred and fifty. No, 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 no. Just, just vocalless versions, cover versions, because you can get, you know. 70s gold or 60s gold karaoke or something. But the lyrics it's, it's, aren't printed on the screen, are they? No, I don't. Aren't. Well, you might be able to get that, yeah. but he, uh, that was mostly standards that he knew. Okay. Wow. So, so that's, that's quite a change for somebody who started life on a member of the Drifters, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Probably on the Chitlin circuit or something like that. But you end up, you end yeah. up in a yacht club in Suffolk. Yeah, I know. That's right. I know. <laughs> doing, doing your old songs along to the miracle of, uh, of something downloaded onto your iPhone. Exactly. through the PA. Right. In, in almost real time, you know. This, so he would hit play on these things, having never heard them before in his life, and he'd just sing along with them. You know. Fantastic. What did you do? 
Well, he went, uh, you know, after when people got a few drinks down them, he went into a sort of disco gold section. And um, I guess I know those sort of without thinking about it. So I was just, I just jammed along with a keyboard and Brilliant. sang occasional backing vocals. Oh, very good, very good. You listen to the word podcast, are we recording? We are. Special guest, Thomas Dolby. Thomas, nice to have you here. Nice to be here. Thomas has come all the way from Suffolk on the train mm-hmm. on a hot day. We really appreciate you making this this journey. Um, There's a a feature about Thomas in the next issue of Word, an interview with James Med, which I personally found fascinating and jogged my memory and thought, let's get Thomas in, talk about uh, his illustrious career on the podcast. Thomas, we have a tradition on this podcast. uh, Whenever anybody guests for the first time, we ask them what records were in their house when they were small children. Hmm. That's a good question, actually. Um, let's see. Uh, classical music, um, Schubert piano music, uh, bits of Bach, choral music. Um, no jazz to speak of. Um, Tom Lira was a big favourite. Oh, right. Comic, comic pianist. But poisoning pigeons in the park exactly, and things like that. Exactly. Um, no pop music to speak of. I think there was a touch of... Uh, um, Nana Muscuri was probably the most contemporary thing that they had. Right. Uh, but then I had old, older brothers and sisters, that's the thing. So so they, you know, I, I went to a Beatles concert when I was four, uh, Hammersmith Odeon in 1963. You were four? I was four. And I remember it. I remember the visuals. Tell I, us I, about it. Well, um, tiny specks on the stage, thousands of screaming girls, one of whom was my sister, who was 15-ish at the time, was right next to me. Um, as I recall, two sort of 4 by 10 style columns, you know, it, it, one either side of the stage, that was the PA. So you couldn't hear any music at all. And I have to actually add a little postscript to this story. I met Paul McCartney a couple of years ago. He came to a gig of mine in California. And we're in the green room afterwards, and, of course, he was surrounded by, um, uh, you know, admirers. And, and I mentioned to him, you know, that, that, uh, that I'd seen, seen this concert, Hammersmith Odeon. And he went, uh, Hammersmith, yeah, you may have played there. And, and I thought, this is so bizarre, because any Beatles fan can picture that long vertical poster from that gig with, you know, Freddie and the Dreamers and, right. and Jerry and the Pacemakers and things, you know. At Hammersmith Odeon, Christmas this their Christmas concert in 1963. And to him, it was just another gig. <laughs> Shea Stadium, you know, we may have played they, 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 <laughs> Yes, it's just, it's just a torrent of images to him, isn't it, exactly. really? And it's exactly. not remembered in the same way at all. So were you born overseas? No, I was born in London, in Hampshire. Right, yeah. right. So what do your parents do? My dad was an archaeologist, uh, a classical archaeologist, Greek pottery, and uh, he taught at Oxford and then Cambridge University. Uh, as did his dad and his dad. So a long line of archaeologists in my family. So how did you fall into pop music? Um, it was just what came naturally to me, really. Uh, you know, I've, I've got five brothers and sisters, and I was always a bit of an exhibitionist. You know, They, they were a very literate family. Uh, not particularly posh, but very academic and a bit bohemian. So they'd have these long, intense intellectual conversations, you know, about Chekhov or something. And I would get up on the, on the, on the table, you know, dinner table, and do a song and dance, you know, just to <laughs> grab the attention. So I think that's where my, my thin exhibitionist streak came from. And how did that turn into a profession? 
Well, nothing else really interested me. You know, I, I did okay at school, but I was not particularly, uh, you know, interested in it. And um, I roadied for, for the one band at my school and then later became their keyboard player. And that was when I got really excited about stuff. So, so I left school at 16 and uh, went to work in a fruit and veg shop in Notting Hill Gate. So what? you left school at 16 and that must have been a big thing for your parents who are academics. You know, with child number five, it was not that big a deal. <laughs> it was sort of a feather in their caps, <laughs> in a way. Child number five, they let them play with lighted matches, don't they? Exactly. Right. That's that's what happened. So well, the one that I bothered. You worked in what? In a fruit and fruit and veg shop. Yeah, in Notting Hill Gate. And then then at night I would go home to my bed sit and practice my my keyboards. When are we talking about? What years are we talking about? Oh, here? we're talking about sort of seventy six ish, seventy five, seventy six. So you know what was going on in London then, and and that's where I was off to. You know, down the Hundred Club or the Marquee. You know, with my spiky hair. <laughs> but um, I mean, it didn't appeal to me very much. Uh, you know, that the sort of three chord thrash didn't stimulate me musically. Um, so I was into krautrock and things like that, and that's where I got my, my sort of stimulation. Oh, really? So we, who were the first krautrock groups that you were oh, taken you, by? You know, people like Tangerine Dream and uh, Kraftwerk and, you know, Gong and, and uh, Popple Vu and people like that. Right. So what was your dress code at the time? It always really interests me. If you go back and look at photographs mm. of 1976, mm. that there's kind of art director's view of 1976, which is that everybody's got safety pins through their noses mm. and bondage trousers. Mm. And then you've got real 1976 which is huge variety of different looks going mm. on. There were people, you know, ACDC fans, mm. there were still Rollers fans, mm. they, were, they, they were kind of art school kids. Where did you fall in that? Well, in, in 1976, if you didn't have long hair and flares, that was making a statement in and of itself. And there was a period there where nobody really knew quite what punk was. So if you were, you know, the Greyhound on, on Fulham Palace Road or, or the Railway in Putney, you advertised every band like it was a punk band so you know the police elvis costello uh, w were all advertised as punk at the time and not knowing any better because they had short hair and straight trousers you thought well you know maybe that's what punk is yeah and you hadn't seen them before therefore they hadn't been around five years earlier or something therefore you assumed that they were part of this this new wave coming along, didn't you? Well, just a few years earlier, you know, we were into Steely Dan and Little Feet and Genesis and Yes and things. And it had gotten, I mean, looking back, it had gotten very staid and sort of stifling. You know, everybody had a subscription to Rolling Stone magazine and got the new latest Steely Dan album, you know. And I, I went to school with Shane McGowan, who, who was always the, the encyclopedic music brain. And I remember sitting in a coffee bar having a smoke one afternoon and Shane came in and somebody mentioned the Beatles or the Stones or something sort of classic. And he said, oh, it's all crap. And we said, oh, what do you mean? What, do you, what, you, what should we be listening to, Shane? And he said, and he started mentioning people like the MC5 and, you know, Johnny Thunders and New York Dolls. And we were just, you know, absolutely cobsmacked by this. Um, so that, that, I mean, that would have been, you know, probably 74, 75. And that was the beginning of the backlash on the sort of established, you know, prog rock thing of the, of the mid 70s. Um, Ironically, you know, I remember the first review in the NME of the Sex Pistols and their reaction was very similar to ours. It's like this young man came on stage and spat at the audience and swore and marched off in a half after 45 minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, of course, within a few months, it was the new big thing. Yes, there know. wasn't much difference between the reaction of the music press and the reaction of the Daily Mirror, really, was there? No, I initially, no. no. Until they worked out that this is, this is a good way to sell a lot of papers. Absolutely. So a lot of this is commercial, isn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? You know, the, the, uh, 
the promoters in the clubs and the people running pubs and music nights, and they felt that they really had to promote it as punk because that was a way of getting people in. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it was what was in the, um, on the headlines, you know, in the newspapers. I mean, at the time, don't forget, you know, there wasn't a pop section of the Daily Mirror. You know, it's very rare that a pop act got in there, and the only time they ever would, you know, in those days was, you know, if one of the Rolling Stones urinated in a, in a petrol station or something like that. Um, but, I mean, generally speaking, as a matter of course, music didn't get into the papers, and it wasn't really on mainstream you know, TV and, and, uh, and you know, any, any radio other than pop radio. Well, there's no mention of it um, unless it was something outrageous. Uh, so it was, quite, it was quite exciting, really, when, when somebody like the Pistols, you know, were getting the headlines. But you preferred yourself to do something slightly more sophisticated. How, how did you... What was the first record you were involved in making? Can you remember? Well, yeah, I mean, the first record I was involved in making actually was um, was New Toy with Lena Lovitch. Um, so what year was this? I've, I've actually got these queued up on my iPad in an extraordinary act of preparation here. <laughs> I'm going to try and play a little bit of that, the beginning of that. Is that you? That is me, yeah. So what year was that? Can you remember? Um, I would think that would have been 78, probably. Um, Now, to be fair, you know, my first professional gig before that was with Bruce Woolley in the camera club uh, as a keyboard player. Um, But I didn't write, you know, Bruce wrote his own songs and I just contributed as a keyboard player and I was sort of a hired gun. Uh, Whereas I wrote New Toy for Lena and was involved with the arrangement and the production and so on. And so that was when that went in the charts, that was my my first sense of, of actually making a hit record. Where did you make that record? Can you remember? Yeah, it was in it was in um, Camden Town somewhere. Uh-huh. Don't remember the name of the studio. And you thought, I've got a hit record here. I've got my name on a hit record. I've arrived. Did you? Once it went in the charts and we did it on top of the pops. Yeah, absolutely. Well, who, who else was on top of the pops when you did did it? Can, can you remember? Well, I mean, it would have been um, probably seventy eight. Mm. Uh, I've got a feeling Dave Edmonds was on after us. I see. If that makes sense. Um, Madness, possibly, or somebody from the... That would make sense. ...from that camp. Uh, I mean, um, yeah, Stiff Records, which Lena was on, was very hot, you know, at that time. Yeah, yeah, and that was the time when the entire nation tuned in. Yeah. 17 million people, or whatever it was, used to to watch Top of the Pops. Well, it was huge, and, I mean, if you got on Top of the Pops you were going to have a hit. If you didn't, then something was terribly wrong. Um, but you couldn't really have a hit without being on top of the pops. So it's very much an all-or-nothing thing. And it all happened very quickly because, you, you know, Tuesday morning you would get the chart positions. Tuesday afternoon you'd hear if you were going to be on top of the pops on Thursday. Tuesday evening you would pretend to record, re-record the song in a studio. Yeah, now explain this for the benefit of younger listeners or people who not used to the iniquitous ways of the music business, yeah. how this used to work. Because you, you were supposed to re-record it, weren't you? Yeah, well, well Top of the Pots at the time was mimed. You know, the performers were miming to playback. So in order to avoid uh, paying the musicians twice, um, people would use, you know, the original song. And so the Musicians' Union insisted that you re-record the song for the BBC to, to mime to on top of the pops. So Tuesday evening, every Tuesday evening, the Beeb would have half a dozen studios booked out and they'd tell you where to go. You know, you go to, I don't know, Marcus Music in um, 
uh, and you show up there and there's a guy there from the BBC and a guy from the union and a guy from your record company and your, your roadies would be setting up the gear you've got three hours to re-record it you know three hours to re-record a record that would take months to you make know, relax by Frankie goes to Hollywood <laughs> so, so um, they you know the, the record company guy was oh you know should we go around the corner for a pint so they go around the corner for a pint and an hour an hour and a half later with the musician union guy yeah, usually yeah, yeah yeah the three of them would go around yeah. the corner an hour and a half later they come back and the roadies are now packing up the gear and there's this <laughs> Immaculate set of tapes sitting there, <laughs> newly borrowed on newly the outside, borrowed, which the the BBC man would take back, and and everybody knew what was going on, the union knew what was going on, the musicians. So it's just a complete sham because the musicians' union guy got paid to turn up, yeah. the studio got paid, so they didn't mind at all. You know, I think the only people that did well out of it really were the studios because you know we could have done all the rest of it and saved the cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you started, did you you started to get your name about then mm. via Lena Lovitch, and you were getting calls from other people to. To play on their uh, records. Well, yeah, it was a strange period because you know I I, I didn't really have an income per se, and um, I was sort of putting everything into my career, and, and you know synthesizers were very expensive in those days, and and just the taxis to get them around the place were expensive because so they, they were. How, how, can you remember your first synthesizer and how much it cost? Yeah, I mean, my, it was a Transcendent 2000, and it had been built from a kit in the back of, like, Popular Mechanics magazine or something. By you or by no, somebody by else? by somebody else, and, uh, and it cost, I think, 1,200 quid. I mean, a lot of money. Yeah, and it didn't actually have a keyboard, by the way. It was just a panel. <laughs> so you had to plug it in like a telephone exactly, exchange. Exactly. So it wasn't, wasn't exactly user-friendly. No, well, I mean, that's why, that's why I was considered a pioneer, because there are only half a dozen people stupid enough to do this. I was going <laughs> to say this, because you, you famously played on, on a foreigner record didn't yeah, you and i'm yeah. going to play a little bit of it now i think it's going to start is that you again it is indeed you know that one fraser don't oh, you yeah. Is that you again? It is indeed. So that's Waiting for a Girl Like You by, uh, by Foreigner, which is a huge hit. Yeah, it's massive. So, yeah, and Evergreen as well still gets played, you know. I bet, I bet. So uh, that was a case of uh, them trying to find somebody who had one of these curious machines and knew how to get it in a taxi to them and, and how to operate it. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, of course, it's a matter of what you do with it. Um, I'm, sure, the, I'm sure. The way it came about was that, you know, I went through a lean spell financially and I actually fled the country because I had sort of debtors hounding me. And um, I, I, I turned up in Paris with a, with a guitar because I had a mate there that was busking in the metro. And um, we, we used to sit in the metro and, and busk, you know, every morning until we had enough money in the guitar case to get something to eat. And then we'd sit in a cafe all afternoon. And I, I'd been there for, uh, I suppose, three or four months doing this. And I got a call... Um, from a, a friend in London saying some, Mick Jones is trying to get hold of you to do a session and I, I thought he meant Mick Jones from The Clash obviously you know I'd never heard of Foreigner but um, it turned out that Mutt Langer the producer um, who was a partner in Zomba as a say, music publisher um, had gotten hold of a cassette of my demos because uh, Zomba were considering signing me for a publishing deal, and he liked the keyboard playing. And they'd already tried to put keyboards on the album, didn't like them very much. They're in New York, Electric Lady. And he liked this, this keyboard playing, and he said, would you come to New York for a couple of days and, and try out? So I showed up in New York, and they, they liked what I did. 
and they were already late with the album. They were doing vocals during the day, and at night they would bring in a relief engineer, and I sat through the night, an electric lady, for a month, recording um, keyboard tracks, and they'd say, look, you've got these six tracks, these seven tracks. That's Thomas's phone, I think. I'll turn it off. Um, And they'd come back in the morning and listen to what I'd done. And, um, you know, they, they sometimes gave me a brief, like, like on that one, they said, you know, we've got this slow ballad and um, we're not known for ballads. And, and we feel if we're going to we're going to, you know, be a bear, be a grizzly. And um, that was always um, was always much motto. And so he said, you know, put an intro on here. And, and you know, I, I told him that I liked Eno. And he said, what, that massage music? And I said, no, it's not massage music. <laughs> That's the world of Mutt Langer. I said, I said I'll, show you, I'll show you. It can be very tasteful. And he said, go on, then put an intro on this ballad and, and, and see what happens. And so I did it. And, um, you know, I mean, for years, you'd, you'd be driving across middle America, some sort of, you know, Atlanta FM rock station or whatever, AOR rock. And you'd hear this sort of ambient Eno music come on for 15 seconds, and it was this sort of transcendent moment. So how did you get paid at the time? You just got paid for the sessions? Yeah, I mean, they, they pay me by the day, and um, I came back with a pocket full of cash, actually enough to make my own first album. So I had no record deal at the time, and I went into a small studio in South London, and I made the Golden Age of Wireless with the cash that I got from Foreigner. So just going back to that uh, for a second, I mean, you do get these cases now where... Uh, things turn up in the high court 40 years after a record was a hit over, mm. you know why she shade of pale or whatever mm. where somebody says well i played the organ intro on this record therefore i contributed you know significantly to the mm-hmm. commercial appeal of the tune mm. do you have any sympathy with that point of view because traditionally you know the the, uh, the ownership belongs to the songwriter doesn't it rather than the the people who contribute well, the the laws apply to songwriting are a bit more cut and dried, and they date back to you know the twenties and sheet music and things like that, and and they get reformed every now and then. But it's always twenty, thirty years behind technology, and you know one of the big problems with with song copyrights is that. Um, uh, on a on a pop record, a rock record, you know, very often the parts, the sounds are the iconic thing in themselves. So you couldn't argue that 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 organ on the white shade of pale is not fundamental to the composition. It just really is. But the actual law applying to that date goes back to the top line melody and the lyrics. And this is a law that goes back, as I say, decades and decades. So they're hopelessly out of date. Those laws. And a lot of the reason for a lot of bands breaking up is that, you know, a band becomes successful and they're playing big stadiums and they've got hits in the charts and stuff. And a year or two into it, the bass player realises that he's still on 400 quid a week and the singer has got a Maserati and a beach house in Malibu because he wrote the lyrics and the top line of the song. And it's really out of all proportion. The publishing also is is out of proportion to the recording side. Record the, you know, the whole recording side of the industry was always... Um, you know, swallowed up in a way. You, you would anything you made, you would push back into it with satin tour jackets and and you know freebie this and that and so on. And it was sort of plunged back in. And the the publishing money was like this sort of Swiss bank account um, because uh, it's untouchable. Really, it gets paid anyway, and you can't really dig into it and use it to reinvest in the business. So this is this is very nice if you're the songwriter. Yes, not so nice if you're the bass not player. Not so nice if you're his mate that he went to school with, you know, who is now just. In, so this is a reason a lot of bands broke up because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't come to terms with that. And, uh, and the reason that people like REM and U2 have stayed together because exactly. they, they share everything. Ex- they? Exactly, Equally. because yeah. they had the foresight to realise, look, we're all going to do fine out of this, but let's not let's not deny the 
fact that we are a band and we come up with a lot of those things in a rehearsal room, just jamming or in, on the tour bus or whatever, sitting backstage. That's where those originate from. So even if the bass player or the drummer wasn't responsible for that top line melody or the lyrics, they still had a, a big part. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, you made your, your first uh, your first solo record. So is is that where uh, She Blinded Me With Science came from, your hit? Well, actually... Your first hit. <laughs> actually, oddly enough... Playing um, in the background. Right. Um, oddly enough, She Blinded Me With Science and one of our submarines were not originally on the Golden Age of Wireless. Um, I, I went into the studio. The Golden Age of Wireless came out. It did quite well critically. Um, I think a couple of songs from it, Europa and, and Wimpa, got in the lower reaches of the charts. You know, I went on top of the pops and, and so on. Uh, but I was not a household name, you know, either side of the Atlantic at that point. Um, so I went back into the studio to record a couple of new songs, which was supposed to be a single. Uh, she blinded me with science and one of our submarines. And when the American company heard these, they said look, we think these could do really well in the US, um, especially when they saw the video, and MTV was just taking off over there. So they said, we're going to put this out, and and if it does well, we're going to repackage the first album with these two songs on. And so that's that's what happened. I mean, it, it, it was great timing for the US. Uh, the video was a huge hit on MTV. And actually, the, the dance version of the song, She Blimey Science, was a huge uh, club hit, a crossover club hit in the States. So even though I wasn't really getting mainstream radio play, there was enough heat around that to make it a top five uh, single and the album you know, went top ten and um, uh, it was a gold record and, and I went over there after that and just you know, make hay while the sun shines. So, and that record, of course, featured um, Magnus Pike, didn't <laughs> Did it? Did indeed, yeah. The late Magnus Pike. The late Magnus Pike. And, and you know, young kids that I talk to these days don't, don't really know who he was. Um, and uh, Whereas Patrick Moore is still going strong, isn't he? <laughs> Eccentric old scientist. <laughs> astonishing. Yeah. So, um, but you're also, uh, you, you're very much in the centre of that, that, that movement in 80s pop record making that kind of tends to come in for a bit of stick nowadays. When people talk about the 80s sound, Mm. a particular drum sound, or a particular... They they tend to associate it with something rather tinny and shrill. Do you think think they have a case? I think you can look back at any era, really, of music and see which stuff, you know, survived the test of time and which didn't. Um, For myself, I, I feel that what set my music apart, really, was that they are songs that I could sit at the piano and play you, um, because they have... They have a, a you know a classical song structure to them, and yes, there were state of the art sounds, um, which maybe haven't dated so well. Uh, but I think when the when fundamentally it's built around a song, when the, when the sounds are there to serve the song, I think that's when stuff tends to date a lot better. Do you ever listen back to that some of that stuff and think I'd like to make it again? No, I have no regrets about anything I've done, actually. <laughs> right? No, that's a good thing. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I really don't. The, the, I suppose there's two or three mistakes ever that I think I made where I just think, oh, if I'd just taken another ten minutes in the studio, I could have fixed that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that, that, you know, music from that era, you took one single snapshot of a song, and if it's successful, you've got to live with it for decades. Whereas in reality, a song evolves, you know, over a period of time. And when I sing She Blinded Me of Science today, it has naturally evolved a little bit, and it's a bit different. Um, but uh, 
people are always going to compare it to the snapshot of me singing at age 23 or whatever I was. Um, so one of the things I like about these days is that there can be multiple versions of a song. You know, if, if I change a song, if I change the second verse lyrics to a song next month, I can stick up a new version along on the, right on the on, internet. So yeah. there it is on, on the internet right alongside the old one. And so it, it allows a song to carry on evolving through its lifetime. You worked quite a bit with uh, Trevor Horn and Malcolm McLaren. Is that the case on 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 which record? Duck Rock? Or? Yeah, uh, I knew Trevor Horn because of the Bruce Woolley connection. Uh, Bruce had been in the Buggles um, early on, and so I'd kept up with Trevor and done some sessions with him, you know, over the years. And um, uh, he asked me to work on Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock album uh, right when they just got off the plane with the multi-track tapes that they come back from South Africa with. So they'd gone to South Africa and made loads of re- studio recordings with South African musicians. Yeah, and there was no there was no Malcolm rap on it yet, you know, it was just the raw backing tracks. And you have to remember that in those days, um, because there weren't good recording studios in places like South Africa and, and you know, uh, countries around the world, um, world music, it was maybe something you'd heard, but you hadn't heard it recorded well. So what Trevor had done is he'd gone over there and recorded, you know, I mean, there's, there's fabulous musicians there playing electric instruments and so on, and, and um, but it was the first time he'd sort of imported something. Uh, and I was the first musician to go out and, and add stuff to it. And how do you go about adding stuff? And where, where does Malcolm appear in this? You know, how does, it, how does the record like that work itself out? Because it doesn't start with the song, does it? No, it doesn't really start with a song. I mean, you know, Trevor Horn, his style as a producer is that he takes sort of big chunks of songs and he has things going on, you know, he gets a vibe going. And, and then, you know, one of his engineers will, will say, you know, I, I love that drum groove in the B section of that song. And, and Trevor will say, yeah, I'll go in Studio B, man, and, you know, try and try and do something with it. And so there's, there's multiple threads going on while a song is being developed. And then they'd bring them into Trevor, and he'd listen to, oh, I, I like the intro to that one, you know. And so he'd 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 stick that on there, and um, so so he plays God really, you know. He takes these huge bits. He's, he doesn't he doesn't lean over the knobs and twiddle them himself the way Mutt Langer would, you know. Who has a microscopic control over over every aspect, or Steve Lillywhite, or something. His former engineers like that. Um, Trevor is very much the musician, and uh, he's an inspiring character to work with. You know, he brings the best out in you, and so you produce your best stuff. And then he picks and chooses, and he's not sentimental about it. And some of the stuff that I did on Malcolm's record was thrown out with the bathwater. <laughs> I got to say, what happens when you're you get the call? Uh, you know, Trevor or whoever would like you to come in and play a bit of keyboard on this, and you know, contribute in any way you can. And you turn up, and you maybe do a few days. Does somebody ring you up afterwards and say, you know that bit you did, we've lost it, or, you know, we've decided not to use it, or it's the, or it's the key part of the record? What's the process of, uh, of talking to you about that? You very rarely hear anything at all. Really? Yeah. In fact, I make a point when I do that with people of letting them know how it ended up, which is not always a lot of fun because sometimes it's on the cutting room floor. You know, but I mean, when that happens, I try and explain because they're going to, as soon as the record comes out, they're going to hear it anyway and they're going to hate and me and curse you and curse <laughs> me. You know? But I mean, often it's for a good, it's for a very good reason. We just couldn't get it to work or whatever. And, and sometimes it's the musicianship, you know, and then you, know, you try and be honest with the musician and you sort of say, look, you know, you, it wasn't quite cutting it. And I'm not sure if Bossa Nova is really your style. <laughs> <laughs> There's loads of polite ways of saying it because you've done, you've done quite a lot of production yourself. Mm-hmm. Famously, the, the first 
first Prefab Strat record? I did three albums with them. Three, um, sorry. Uh, the second one was only half the album. But, um, yeah, Steve McQueen I recorded with them. How did you find that experience? Because that's a record that's uh, still fondly regarded many years later. It's a brilliant record, absolutely brilliant record. Um, and, and I was honoured to be involved in it, and it would have been brilliant with other engineers or other producers. Um, I think that... Uh, you know the songwriting was was so immaculate and they had a unique sound um i think paddy McAloon's voice being so warm and and um and intimate and wendy smith being sort of almost asexual you know having this sort of this this bed behind of this female voice was a very good counterpoint a very good vocal flavor and original vocal flavors are quite rare you know these days they've all been done um so that was that was nice um my con- my contribution really was um, to sort of cross the T's and dot the I's. Um, Paddy is a songwriter. It's all about the lyrics. Um, when we were preparing for that album, I sat in his bedroom with him and he had a stack of songs going back 10 years. And he pulled them out and they were lyrics with occasional notes written over of an E chord or an A chord or whatever. And he strummed the guitar and he, he sang his lyrics. And uh, they were all... You know, they, they, they were phrases that contained seven bars or bars that contained seven, five beats, you know. They, they were all angular. And their first album, Swoon, um, they tried to cope with that by sort of being fiddly, you know, with the arrangements. And it was, hard, it was a hard album to listen to, a bit too didactic, you know, although the, the songs were great, but just hard to listen to. So mainly I was just manicuring it a little bit and making it more presentable. So it started, you know, in the rehearsal room with them, um, just figuring out the arrangements. And once we got the arrangements right, production is easy. You know, then you get a halfway decent sound and it sounds good because the parts are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're there to capture a performance, essentially, aren't you? Yeah, and, and to be their keyboard player. You know? I mean, Paddy plays keyboards, but he was not very experienced with them in those days. He was focused on the guitar. So I played the keyboards on the, on the album, and, uh, and, you know, the keyboards are quite central to the album. But I was trying not to do my own style, you know. I was trying... Paddy would very often thump out some chords, and I'd look at what he'd done, and I'd just elaborate a little bit. You also produced a Joni Mitchell record. I co-produced it with Joni. And Dog Eat Dog. So what year are we talking about there? Mid-80s, early 85, I think. So what, you just got the call from Joni Mitchell? Yeah, I'm not quite sure how she would have heard about me. I mean, I was a huge Joni fan. Um, I think, actually, For the Roses was one of the first albums I bought with my own pocket money, um, which would have been, what, early 70s, something like that. And... um, uh, I loved her stuff. I knew it inside out, and uh, I'd quoted her very often, and this must have caught her attention. And the record company wanted her to do something a little bit more accessible, you know, than some of her sort of jazzier, you know, um, uh, adventures. And so they were looking for a contemporary sound or musician that, that she could relate to. And um, so uh, she picked me, which was, which was great. I mean, a great honour. Um, I think it's an interesting album. She was very angry at the time. She had some very bad experiences with a manager who ripped her off and a bad car crash. And she was furious at the extreme right-wing evangelism that was going on in the USA at the time, you know. And um, she took out some of that anger on me, actually. <laughs> she was a little bit hard because I was this sort of this little worm, you know, adoring, you know, one of my childhood heroes. And... Um, uh, it, was, it was a bit of a tough experience, but I, I like the way it sounds. So where did you make the record? In Los Angeles. Right, right. What, her studio or...? No, it wasn't her studio. I mean, she lived out at Malibu and we made it, made the album in, in Hollywood. Right. And how did she go about working as opposed to Prefab Sprout? 
Oh, completely different, completely different. I mean, with prefab, you know, they were open to anything. So I would, I would take what they'd done and I'd make suggestions and they'd bounce, bounce them off, you know. And, and if they didn't like them, they'd say, but it's okay, you move on. Um, I tend to do things in little in little chunks little uh, you know so i mean i'll program a sound which is designed for just a single line melody and then i build this sort of patchwork of different parts and different sounds Joni, on the other hand her approach to keyboards is you sit down you play a piano part you know left hand right hand and so i'd be programming a sound and she'd say "Ooh, that sounds lovely let me try and she'd come over and start playing a piano part on my synth you know with a sound that i designed to play a three note lick and it would be so fat that it wouldn't fit with everything else you'd done. You go, well, Johnny, it, it sort of masks you know, the stuff we did yesterday and the day before. Oh, wipe it, wipe it. And, you know, because in those days you had limited tracks, so yes. you couldn't just keep filling th- stuff up. And you, you go, I beg your pardon, wipe it all. She was very, very compulsive like that. So you'd spend two days working on something, building something up, and then she'd wipe it and replace it with this one thing. And, and so I, it, I found it quite hard to do my thing, and so it didn't, didn't really work. I mean, because I think because she plays my instrument, you know, when she'd worked in the past with, say, Jaco Pastorius on the bass or Tom Scott on the sax, you know, she's not going to pick up a sax and tell him how to play it. So in a way, you know, those catalysts work better for her than, than to have somebody come in that played her instrument. And presumably it's next to impossible to say to somebody like Joni Mitchell, I think you're wrong. <laughs> well, you can try. You can try. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd They're much, not hearing it, are they? I would all? much rather spend the evening listening to her talking about the hippie cave she lived in on a Greek island, you know, or what it was like to be at Woodstock than, than rowing with her about whether to erase track 22. Right. Uh, Another legend you work with, probably around about the same time, uh, David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, Live Aid, you were uh, in the band, or were you organising the band? Were you kind of musical director, or how did that work? Well, I wouldn't say musical director. I mean, it sort of came together, it came together very, very quickly. Uh, his regular touring band were elsewhere. And uh, I don't think David realised at the beginning how big of a deal it was going to be. I don't think anybody did. I don't think anybody did. So when he first got the call and agreed to do it, it was some charity gig, you know, and he was promoting his current single, which was Loving the Alien. And, and he thought, <laughs> you know, with that. Oh, Wembley, you know, could be a good, good plug for my new single. Um, and he was very busy because he was at Pinewood or Elstree, or one of those studios, filming Labyrinth. Uh, and so we only got to rehearse at night. We did some of the rehearsals down at his at the film studio, um, and we had four four evenings of rehearsal. And he kept changing his mind about what songs to do because as, as he got focused, as he got closer to the day, he realised this was you know bigger than just a, a, an opportunity to plug your latest single. And presumably and so, heard that the other groups were rehearsing just as hard. Absolutely, and and you know the bill was only fleshed. I mean, you know you know the whole history of that. Um, so we had, I think, we'd played. Each of the, song, the four songs we did, I think we played them through a few times, but never back-to-back uh, when, when he settled on the final set. So I was very nervous about it. I was convinced I was going to mess it up, especially as we opened with TVC15, which has a you know, piano intro, which is not, it's sort of honky-tonk, not really my style. So I was convinced I was going to screw this up. And, and Heroes, ironically, which is an anthem of my teenage years, um, I would mess that up as well because I'd forget how long a verse was or when the chorus came in. Or what. So I thought, I'm going to screw this up in front of a billion and a half people. <laughs> but um, on, on the day, it turned out that, that you know, my fingers did the walking. You know, it was such a, a trans and dental experience playing those songs it you just know, kind of lifted at, everybody didn't yeah, it? staring at Bowie's back six feet away and then the whole of Wembley Stadium the other side of him, it's just amazing it's, it's kind of amazing in retrospect how, how few cock-ups there were at Live Aid really well, you, you know, you, by individual bands, I don't really remember any. Well, you may have seen doctored, you know, p- 
post-produced versions of them. Um, but uh, no, on the day it didn't seem like it. No. But, then, but then you know, it's live music. There's a lot. You're very forgiving when stuff is live. You know, yeah. um, and you get the spirit of it more than you go in and microscopically analyze different yeah, notes. Yeah, I was interested. I was reading something on your blog the other day where where you were talking about David Bowie and I think Prince as well. And you said that the problem with these great artists is they they sort of can't write songs anymore. Is that the case, do you think? Can't or don't, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, I think that there's interesting parallels between Bowie and Prince, because I think, I think Bowie was, to the, certainly to the 70s, what Prince became to the, you know, the mid-80s onwards in terms of, you know, style icon, um, fashionista, um, chameleon-like uh, musician uh, who seemed to be untouchable, you know, and brilliant live performers and so on. So I think for successive generations, you know, they, they were equally influential. Um, but the other p- interesting parallel with them was that in their sort of golden years, no pun intended, um, they were writing songs that had chord sequences that had beginnings, middle and middle, middles and ends, and that later in their careers they made a lot of albums which were sort of more jam based, you know, more just you know it's in E minor, go kind of thing, and. Um, I regret it in both cases, you know, I'd, I'd miss, you know, if, if you listen to the, the to outside or something like that, and then you thought about the chord sequence to Life on Mars, you go, well, what happened to those those chord sequences that used to be in his songs? What happened to the, the effort that went into the, the structure of the song like that? And, and ditto with Prince, you know, if you look at the sort of Purple Rain era, um, all of those songs were just fantastic compositions. And his later albums, you know, yeah, they groove, they groove you know, they're funky as anything, but um, in a lot of cases there, there wasn't the effort Effort had gone into the song itself. It's, I suppose another parallel is Joni Mitchell, isn't it? You know, the, the, isn't she? You know, that you listen to later Joni Mitchell records, and at their best, they're interesting. Mm. You listen to the classic ones. Nobody ever said "Blue" or "Floor the Roses" was interesting. Mm. It, it, just the songs themselves just kind of washed over you. You know. I mean, frankly, I'm not that familiar with any of her recent stuff because I was by myself rather unable to <laughs> listen. Scarred to by the well, I, I was actually. I've, <laughs> I've recently become able to listen to her old stuff again. I've got some on my iPod, you know. But it is it is Hajira and you know for the roses and hissing of summer lawns and stuff. And I haven't really delved into her more, more recent stuff. The word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Now, you've been working outside the music business for Mm. for quite a number of years. Mm. Doing what? Well, yeah, I mean, in the early 90s, uh, I put out an album called Astronauts and Heretics, which was my my fourth solo album. And um, it it, it did very well critically and did nothing commercially, really. And um, I was having a hard time persuading record companies that the sort of quieter, more intimate side of my music was something worth pursuing and I think part of the problem is that because I'm capable you know in odd moments of doing something as sort of extrovert as hyperactive or she blinded me with science um and because it's it's made them a mint in the past um they find it very hard to deal with the idea of me just doing the more the, the more sort of lush personal stuff like um screen kiss or i love you goodbye or, or those kinds of songs and um this was upsetting to me on, on top of which the music business was starting to go into a real decline at the beginning of the 90s i suppose it was the beginning very beginnings of the sort of digital problems that they had um but it had become very bloated um and it wasn't it didn't feel like an exciting place to be conversely Silicon Valley was where it was all happening. You know, I'd always used software. 
uh, I'd always consulted with software and hardware companies on on the technology that I used, and I wanted to go to the source. You know, I wanted to get in right in there and help shape the next generation of of technology. And so, when I went to Silicon Valley in the early '90s, it was very refreshing to me. I mean, it's a it's a very sort of adult industry, you know, grown up industry um, compared to the music industry, um, and. Uh, I liked that. I liked getting involved in a in a new, being challenged by a new kind of skill, and so I started. I started out doing sort of very cool interactive music that made absolutely no money whatsoever, and and then when the web came along, and now you could do very very famous cool interactive music got downloaded by tens of millions of people and still made no money whatsoever (laughs) um but there was investment you see there were there were investors vcs that were willing to back you to do that in the hope of some pot of gold at the end of the rainbow well the the internet bubble sort of you know blew up and and burst eventually and my company beatnik would have gone the way of so many dot coms were it not for the fact that we had one deal that made sense and that was with nokia because we made a little synthesizer a tiny synthesizer which was originally designed for web pages and Nokia licensed it and got our engineers to go to Finland and adapt it to go in their mobile phones to do polyphonic ringtones. And we did that in 98 and 99. And by 99, every Nokia phone that came out had Beatnik's synthesizer embedded in it. And it, uh, every Nokia phone since and most of their competitors. So there's actually over 3 billion Beatnik synthesizers in the world. So that's as kind of as random almost as having a hit record, isn't it? You know. Well, it is. I mean, it's, you it's, just do one tiny thing that happens to score huge. I, I think that's right, and and I think that uh, it's one of those random things that'll end up on a Trivial Pursuit card. You know, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. the previous card was, you know, which of the following monkeys' mother invented liquid paper, <laughs> and then the, the next one is, you know, which of the following, you know built the synthesizer in three billion mobile so, phones. But your company did loads of different things, and that was the one thing that really stuck. Yeah, and I mean, once once we hit pay dirt there, we abandoned everything else and just became a mobile company. <clears throat> but it, became, it ceased to be interesting to me, really. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a businessman for the sake of the numbers and the sales and the engineering and all the rest of it. I like to be creative, and I like to invent new stuff. And um, so as soon as it, it sort of was over the hump, really, and started being successful, as a company it's no longer really interesting to me so i backed off um you know in the late um noughties and uh and and came back to england to make music but you also uh, got involved as a kind of music director for ted an Mm. interesting organization that probably not many people know in this country explain to us about ted i think more people know about ted than you would imagine actually um certainly it's less well known in the states but um, TED stands for Technology and Entertainment and Design, and it's been going since the 80s. And it was a conference originally, a very, uh, very sort of um, velvet rope sort of, um, you know, behind closed doors Silicon Valley conference where the latest, greatest inventions, technologies um, would, would be presented, you know, by speakers to their peers, basically. Um, and... At the beginning of the 90s, it was taken over by a friend of mine, Chris Anderson, and I became the musical director. And it's a four-day conference, and, and, you know, you have a novelist followed by a politician followed by a, an Arctic explorer followed by a, a genetic physicist or something. And so you get this, this rapid fire of the latest ideas, state-of-the-art ideas. Um, and a flow emerges because people don't just use a PowerPoint from their last speech. They, they're in the moment and they, and they respond to what each other are saying. And, you know, 
at lunchtime you'll be standing in the queue for the salad bar next to an astronaut or something, you know, and you want to hear about that. But he wants backstage tickets to the next Rolling Stone concert. And so this, this sort of interesting little um, uh, synergy takes place. And um, when Chris Anderson took it over, he was determined to take the content and let the rest of the world see it without sort of blowing the intimacy of the event. So that became possible when video online, you know, YouTube and onwards uh, became a reality. And so now you can get TED Talks. Every TED Talk from the last five years has been filmed and put online and they're all 18 minutes or less. And so you go to TED.com and it's sort of like a thinking man's YouTube or woman's YouTube. And um, so people post their comments. There's a community. They respond. You know, there's calls to action to get involved in different things. And it's taken on a sort of philanthropic edge, which you didn't have, you know, when I was first introduced to it. And you go there and you come away thinking, well, we actually really can change the world, even if governments and corporations blow it and, and bungle. There's enough. You know, if there's hope, it's with the scientists. Because there'll be somebody there with a mushroom that you can grow to absorb oil spills or, or, or something like that. I mean, and so you, it's just this inspiring stuff, and, and you come away with a, with a you know, pocket full of business cards and all sorts of ideas about what you can do. And now, Thomas, you're, you're back in the music business. Uh, is it fair to call what you're putting out a record, or is it more than that? Well, it's an album. It's my. <laughs> It's an album. It's my first album in 20 years, uh, Map of the Floating City. And in a way, it's, it's, it's a big project for me because it's, it's almost like a first album. You, you've heard musicians sort of say, well, with my first album, I had 20 years of life experience to draw from. And then my second album, I had six months of backstage and, and um, hotel lounges and so on to draw from. So, so yeah, um, because I've been away for 20 years, I, I've accumulated a lot of ideas and, and songs and um, approaching it with a freshness, really. Um, you know, I feel like I've been out of it so long i've got i'm sort of brimming over with ideas both compositionally and and sound wise um so so it is a big project and um it's taken me two years to do starting with building a studio for myself to do it in um i live on the east coast um and i have a garden that floods from time to time so I couldn't have the proverbial garden shed like a lot of musicians do, you know. Uh, so I, I bought a 1930s ship's, ship's lifeboat off eBay and put it in the garden on, on railway sleepers. And I got local traditional boat builders to come in and build me a new control room uh, in what used to be the wheelhouse of the, of the lifeboat. And um, it's powered by solar panels on the roof and, and a wind turbine up the mast and a bank of batteries so i can work late into the night on just renewable energy and uh you know because you can make an album these days on your laptop um that's pretty much what i did uh but i would occasionally do you know excursions to other studios to record different musicians and uh, now this started life as as three eps is that yeah. the case yeah. and, and and the first of these was called now now you're gonna have to pronounce it for me because i always get it wrong Urbanoia. Uh, oh, so- sorry, I wasn't talking about that one. Oh, okay. I was talking about o- the one I pronounced Oceana, but yeah. it isn't. Okay, well, let me tell you about the three sections to the album. So, yeah. so a map of the floating city, there are three continents called Urbanoia, Americana with a K, and Oceania. And they have very different flavours to them. 
And as I started to put together a list of songs that I wanted to record, I realized that they had three distinct categories to them um, because they came from different parts of my life, really. Urban Neuer is about cities uh, and it has a sort of slightly dark, sinister, um, sort of claustrophobic feel to it. I'm not a city person. I like the tranquility of the countryside and I get a buzz from coming into the city, but I can't spend more than a couple of days here. I go nuts. Um, so there's definitely a dark sort of aura to that. Uh, Americana with a K, was about the 20 years that I spent in the USA, which I really enjoyed. And I still have a house there and I may move back there one day. Um, but during the time I was there, I, I got very uh, uh, a fondness for roots American music. And I loved the fact that a lot of this was a folk tradition, that this was really... Um, uh, original music that had been passed on, you know, around the campfire from one traveller to another. And I felt, you know, I'm just another traveller passing through and I have as much right to be there as anybody else. Um, but like other kinds of artists, like a novelist or a painter, I like a, to choose a different setting, a different landscape for every song that I write. And I like it to be one that's challenging to me. So as an example, one of the songs in Americana, Toad Lickers, uh, was about uh, a tribe of eco hippies uh, holed up in the Welsh mountains, um, who who you know feed on psilocybin mushrooms and get the munchies late at night and sneak into town to raid the skips behind Sainsbury's. And uh, I thought, well, what kind of music would they listen to? And I thought, well, it's going to be a sort of mashup between bluegrass and techno. And what would that sound like? <laughs> so um, so I had a dobro, I had a banjo, harmonica, and a fiddle, and uh, yeehaw kind of feel to it. And um, you know that was the way i went about writing the song and um so each song on the album really you know has a distinct uh, approach to it so that was americana and then oceaneer was about returning to my homeland um you know east anglia is where my mother's family were from a very great you know rich memories of my childhood there i love the tranquility of the place and um i wanted i've got three kids i wanted to give them an experience of that while they were still young and so four years ago i moved back to the uk and, and you know built this lifeboat in my garden and um a map of the floating city is is the album that's come out of it and so some of this music you composed staring out at the north sea in your lifeboat. Absolutely. And That's I've fantastic. Got, I've got a periscope for one of the days I have to keep the blinds drawn because of the sun or because people walking on the beach are staring in, you know, and I'd spy <laughs> on them through my periscope. And um, But it must be an immensely ins- inspiring thing to, to look at. Well, it is immensely inspiring. And, and, you know, we're quite close to a container port, um, Felixstowe, one of the biggest in Europe. And so I'd see these mammoth container ships going out. In certain lights, you know, in profile, they look like the Manhattan skyline. So when there's several of them, it's like you're looking at this sort of archipelago of, of islands out there. So this is how the idea for the floating city came about. Um, but in my warped imagination, I, I imagined this in a sort of dystopian diesel punk future where there's no fuel left anymore. And, the, the, you know, the mainland is inundated. It's been flooded with the rising uh, floodwaters. And so the survivors have sort of requisitioned the fuelless hulls of these container ships and sort of built rafts going out into the sea to keep cool. And um, that was when I came up with the idea for the game. And so I'd originally planned to do three EPs for the album, but instead of doing the third one for Urban Neuer, I decided to make an online game built around this fictional concept of the floating city. 
I talked to two people today who've been listening to this record, and they both said the same thing. It doesn't sound like I expected a Thomas Dolby record to sound, but it's fantastic. I think people that know my music expect the unexpected. Um, there's always been different sides to me. I mean, right after being in the charts with She Blinded Me With Science and, and Hyperactive and so on, I did I Scare Myself, which was a sort of, you know... Dan Hicks song. Dan Hicks song and a sort of early lounge example um or late lounge example depending on you, how you look at it um so i've always been quite contrarian from that point of view and this confounded record company marketing people because they like to pigeonhole you and they like to be able to say you know instantly they give the elevator pitch and explain to people what your genre is and i was always a little bit rootless like that well this has been quite long for an elevator pitch hasn't it really? <laughs> but uh, i hope you've got the point it's a terrific record thomas it really is You've got to finish by telling us about your evening round of Michael Jackson. <laughs> well, when I was making She Blinded Me of Science, the video, uh, I was editing it in Soho, and in the booth next door, in the editing room next door, was Michael Jackson. And uh, Steve Barron was in there editing it, and Michael came in, and he was familiar with my song because he'd heard it in clubs and on American radio. And... Um, we, we chatted a little bit and got on well, and he gave me his number uh, in Los Angeles. Just and that, gave you his number? Gave me his number, yeah. <laughs> he, said, he said, if you're ever in town, you should call me, you know. So shortly after that, uh, I had a big hit in the States, and I went over there. I went to Los Angeles, and I did a live TV show. It was pouring with rain, which it does for a few days here in Los Angeles. And there was this huge entourage of people that wanted to take me out to this club and that restaurant and all the rest of it. And I said, well, actually, I'm, I'm, I've arranged to see a friend tonight. And they said, oh, here, you want to use the phone? And I pull out my Filofax. You remember Filofaxes? <laughs> and and the, only LA number, the only LA number I've got is Michael Jackson's. So I call him up, not expecting you know, him to answer. And he answers. And he goes, where are you? And I said, well, I think we're in Burbank. And he said, well, you're just down the road. You should come over. <laughs> he answered his own phone. He answered his own phone, yeah. And then I went there with the fleet of limos in the pouring rain. And I, got them, I was too embarrassed to drive up his drive with all of these limos. Um, so I got them to drop me off on the avenue, you know. On, on, on Havenhurst. Did you tell them where you were going? Did they? Well, I told them the address, and the driver said, isn't that where Michael Jackson lives? And I go, yeah, that's where I'm going. And there was sort of this hush, you know. And then they dropped me off, and, and I walked up his driveway. And by the time I got to the you know, quarter-mile-long driveway, you know, I was dodging the puddles. And by the time I got to his door, I, w I looked like something the cat had dragged in. And he had this big front door with, with um, glass surrounds to it. And I rang the doorbell, again expecting that some aide or butler or whatever would come. And inside I could see this sort of double circular Busby Berkeley-style staircase. And this little figure came down the stairs in, in a pink tracksuit. And it was Michael. 
and he, and he let me in and um, we sat in the in the hallway in the reception area of this big house and there were art treasures everywhere but no real theme to them you know like a, a solid gold venetian clock and next to that um, an ivory chinese chess set and so on and Michael himself had this sort of this massive medieval throne that he had to climb up to get into. So it sort of dwarfed him, you know. So he sat there in his in his in his pink tracksuit, and we had a very nice conversation. And I thought we were alone in the house. And um, but halfway through the the conversation, um, I hear she blinded me with science coming blasting out of a, a top story window uh, or, or uh, you know from the the landing. I look up and there's little black faces in the banisters, and they disappear. And I thought nothing of it, you know, like the, and, and, you know, five minutes later, the same thing happens. And I go, what, what's the deal with the, with the kids, Michael? And he said, oh, they just can't believe you're the guy off MTV. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and, and then he says, hey, guys, come down here. Come on down here, you guys. So down the stairs come about 12 kids, um, six, seven, eight years old, with Tonka toys and, and radio-controlled vehicles. And they sit on the floor. They were in their pajamas. And they sit on the carpet in front of Michael's throne, playing with their radio-controlled toys. And he and I are talking about production techniques and songwriting and all this, and having a very nice conversation, comparing our childhoods. You know, he, he was a child star. I travelled with my archaeologist dad. Oh, that's nice, he said. <laughs> Jimmy, don't do that. Hey, Billy, you need a new battery in that. Bring it over here. You know, excuse me. So it would, go on, it would go on like this, the conversation. And um, uh, interesting, it very proper i would say nothing nothing at all inappropriate and it was just this sort of you know never never land really um i would say and uh, uh i enjoyed the evening thomas you got to write a book <laughs> i've got a book in me somewhere i'm sure you've heard that before or an ipad app <laughs> <laughs> If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent.